0: The Soldier's Tale is a podcast aimed at giving veterans a place to tell their stories as they see fit. We have chosen to leave these interviews mostly unedited, and given the nature of the subject matter, this podcast may contain some sensitive material. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Soldier's Tale, I'm Stuart Smith. In this episode, I speak with Sergeant Major Harold Hoffer, a Vietnam veteran who spent a 28-year career in the United States Marine Corps. He talks about learning to be a Marine, the overwhelming heat in Da Nang, and one wrong step that was but one of many life-or-death moments he experienced during his time in combat. Sergeant Major Hoffer also tells us about the enduring lessons he took from his military service and what veterans can offer to the civilian world after their time in the armed forces is over. So starting out with, why don't you just tell me uh, a little bit about about yourself, where you grew up, where you're from, uh, you know, childhood, anything like that.
1: Okay. Well, I was born in Germany. Uh, I grew up all over the western states. I, the majority of my life is spent in Colorado. Uh, when I went in the Marine Corps, we were living in Idaho. My dad was... Uh, he kind of moved around from job to job so we we, we moved quite a bit and if, when my mom married my dad he was in the uh, he was in the army so okay. we came from Germany uh, to Fort Ord, California he got discharged at Fort Ord and we lived in Colorado for the majority of our life for the majority of my life as a, as a child
0: interesting so did you go to did you go to college did you go to school anywhere well
1: I went to high school and I graduated from uh, a small high school in a place called Palisade, Colorado which is on the uh, western side of, of Colorado, right near the Utah border, mm-hmm. and uh, graduated from a whole big class of 63 students. And uh, after that, I went to work. I, I wanted to go to college, but I'm from a very, very large family, and we couldn't mm-hmm. afford it at that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, while, I was, while I went to work, I got a, a a greetings message from Uncle Sam that said he'd like to, like, like to employ me for about two years.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So uh, anyway, I... I was drafted, and I answered uh, the notice and uh, got inducted into the Marine Corps in 1969.
0: Okay. So you graduated high school around that time? I graduated
1: graduated from high school in May of 1968. Mm. And you get drafted the following year? Yeah. Okay. So what
0: was that like, getting that draft notice? You know, for me, I always think about what somebody my age and my generation and younger thinks of when we hear Vietnam. But, you know, I'm kind of interested in what it was like for— you haven't been around at that time, you know, when you got that draft notice, did, did the,
1: did the word Vietnam carry some of the same meaning? Sure. Sure did. Because you're talking, the year was 1969. Mm-hmm. Uh, the United States had been embroiled in Vietnam since 1965. And, uh, it had been dragging on, dragging on the Tet of 68 had just happened. And the protests against the war were obviously ramping up at that point in time. Mm-hmm. I'm from the West. I mean, I, the Western States and, um, uh, the idea of obligation, duty, responsibility are things that our parents put into us. And so, one of the things that uh, my parents told me, they say, You know, America's provided a lot for you, you know, and uh, they've given you an education, they've allowed you to live the way you want to live, and uh, consequently, if they ask for something in return, it's your obligation to do as they ask. Sure. Because I'd had no thought of, uh, of military service. And and it made a lot of sense to me.
0: And was that a conversation that you had with your parents once uh, you got was, received the draft notice?
1: That's right. Yeah. You know, my dad had done nine years in the army when he okay. before he'd gotten out. So um, he always let you know the the importance of uh, the obligations that you carried. Not only the obligation of uh, partaking in what th- this country had to give to you, but also your responsibilities as a citizen. You True. know, and when it came time uh, to defend, uh, it was time for you to step up. And uh, everybody that I knew in my area that got drafted did the same thing. I mean, there there weren't we didn't carry signs and do things like "Hell no, we won't go" kind of mm-hmm. thing. It was it was uh, another part of being American. That's what you did.
0: So you didn't feel any of that ambivalence no, about going no. and serving.
1: It, uh, you felt uh, nervous, sure, but none of the but none of the the things that you see t- today mm-hmm. from that p- time period. Mm-hmm.
0: So I guess you go from there to boot camp. Did mm-hmm. you go to Paris Island or
1: no. West yeah, the No. The way the Marine Corps works is if you go into the Marine Corps and you're west of the Mississippi, you end up in okay. San Diego. And okay. if you're east of the Mississippi, you end up in Paris Island. So I ended up in San Diego, California, mm-hmm. with an all-state platoon, by the way. Uh, everybody from the state of Idaho, uh, they put us all together in a big package and they... They sent us to San Diego together, so we went through training as, a, as an all-state platoon.
0: So you had a big group? Well, we had about 70 in okay. the group, yeah. So what was boot camp like? Tell me a little bit about that experience. Well,
1: uh, it, it's kind of a, a cross between what you see in full metal jacket and then not. you got to understand the times are different then. Drill instructors in the Marine Corps knew what your next stop would likely be, and they wanted sure. to prepare you for it uh boot camp was stressful uh boot camp uh, put a lot of demands on you boot camp would not graduate you and allow you to join the ranks of being a marine unless you met every category so when we talk about the marine corps we talk about the marines world war ii and we talk about the marines of uh of the vietnam era uh different times but the mental qualities that make up those guys were all the same and uh The Marine Corps believed in training hard, and that's exactly what they did. They weren't uh, Gunny, uh, whatever his name was, on on Full Metal Jacket, but they were tough. And uh, they had to be because they knew where you would likely end up at. So uh, it's survivable. It it, it wasn't that bad. It it kind of made you proud of your accomplishment. You had joined the Brotherhood. And... uh, I won't forget it, and I never regret it. So that's, I, I guess, those are two good things.
0: Sure. And I wanted to ask you too about that relationship to the drill instructors that you had. What it was like? Was it were they someone that you feared? Were they someone you respected? Was there almost like a? I've talked to some some guys who said it was almost like a big brother type of relationship.
1: Oh that you no, I, I've, I've never met uh, the drill instructor that's a big brother, but uh, <laughs> those men set an example. Sure. They said, "This is the way." the marines are and you can't join that rank until you try to become like this and i think that that was a good thing did you fear them absolutely you didn't want to approach them but they were kind of at a distance from you and that's a target you tried to reach you tried they they were all the movie heroes all rolled up in one and that, and, and 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 they were you know you, you never thought that they would ever ever uh that these guys could never ever get hurt you thought that these guys were uh, when you look up the word Marine in a dictionary, their picture would be there. That's the kind of people they were. They caused you to want to be like them. They caused you to want to emulate their behaviors. They caused you to believe that Marines don't fear. Wrong belief, but they caused you to believe that. They caused you to believe that Marines could do anything. And those are the things that we left re- with recu- uh, recruit training with uh, to go on and uh, and do the things that we had to do. Sure. So... Uh, They were leaders, and they were effective leaders. You know, uh, I teach today, and half of what I teach is I teach from the lessons that I learned from great men like them. Uh, If I ever got to be at their level, that would be saying something. They were good leaders.
0: It sounds like you had pretty great role models.
1: Well, they they were, and and it caused me to not only stay in the Marine Corps that two years, but they caused me to... uh, to stay a Marine for 28 years. Sure. Yeah.
0: So, you know, another thing about boot camp that I'm sort of interested in is how those relationships between the other guys that are with you in your unit, you know, how that starts to develop, how much do they start to develop the sense of camaraderie? Because I'm assuming most of the guys in boot camp you don't necessarily actually serve with in no. active duty.
1: No. But don't. is
0: it is it sort of some of those lessons that you start to learn about the importance of... You know, having your the next guys
1: sure back. and 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 that's driven by the drill instructor. If you drill well, you get rewarded. If you don't drill well as a unit as a team, uh, you see the other side of it the, the the negative reinforcement we would say. You're taught how to rely on each other. You're taught how to uh, look after each other to make sure that everyone does the best that they can. And so it's it's kind of a a quiet peer pressure to not give up, but to push on and do the best you can. Uh, did we have people drop out of recruit training? Absolutely. But those that stayed to the end, they were a platoon, they were they were a unit, and, and we went to different places. I think I saw about three or four of them after I graduated from recruit training. But this is what, the 1968, and we're now in 2016. So this many years later, I still remember everything that, that went on during that period in time. And that's how it's set in your mind. Not nightmarishly, uh, but fondly.
0: So after, uh, <clears throat> after you graduate from boot camp, what was the next step then?
1: We went to, uh, I left there and I went to Camp Pendleton, in California where we went to what we call ITR, which, is, which was the Infantry Training Regiment. Okay. That's where you learned the basic war fighting skills. You don't learn to be a a war fighter by going to recruit training. You learn how to be a basically trained Marine. You learn how to follow orders. Uh, You learn how to dress. Uh, You learn about the chain of command. Uh, You learn about discipline. The war fighting skills were taught at the Infantry Training Regiment. And we went there for probably about a month and from there we we trans we, everybody it didn't matter what your job title was went to itr uh then those people that were going to be infantry those people then transitioned to uh camp horno uh, california but the infantry training regiment was at camp san Freight, and then uh the uh the basic infantry training school was at, at camp horno so you would transition from basic infantry training uh to camp horno to learn your trade as, as an infantryman and everybody else who finished, who were not going to be infantrymen, they went on to their schools. So that select few that were going to be infantrymen just moved up the road a bit to continue their training for probably about another month. Mm-hmm.
0: So, and you went into the infantry, i Yes, sure. I did. So, basically, it sounds like boot camp, you you learned some of the basics of discipline. Absolutely. But then, as far as so, an in infantry training regiment is that where you learn to deal with different types of weapons and, well, and all that stuff? You,
1: you, I, I, infantry training you learn how to work as a squad and has okay. a platoon and and things like that it's all it's all the basic things that every marine who wears a uniform learns mm-hmm. uh, at basic infantry training school you learn individual protective measures things of that nature that you're going to need actually in combat because that was going to be your job you were in a, you were going to be an infantryman that was your assignment so at you didn't have an MOS until you actually finished BITS, basic infantry training, and then you got your, if you were going to be a rifleman in 0311, if you're going to be a machine gunner, uh, an 0331 mortarman, the different MOSs that you were going to have. Mm-hmm. And of course, at, at that place, they split you apart. If you're going to be a machine gunner, uh, you got broke apart and into, into a company that learned the machine gun. If you were going to be a mortarman, they taught you how to be a mortarman. And if you're going to be an infantryman they taught, uh, or a basic rifleman, they taught you how to do that.
0: And what, were you a basic rifleman? Or? Absolutely. Okay. I see. I you lucky. say that with a lot of
1: pride. I, I, I was lucky in everything, I guess.
0: Yeah. yeah. And what do you mean by that? Why do you consider uh, yourself lucky to be yeah. a
1: rifleman? You know, everybody who goes, you, you talk to young people today, mm-hmm. and they want to be SEALs and they want to be uh, Special Forces and they want to be Delta. Anybody who joins the Marine Corps, their first idea of being a Marine is always being an infantryman. And so you know you 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 see officers come out of OCS, and they apply for for MOSs, and they either want to be pilots or they want to be platoon leaders in an infantry company, <laughs> and and that and that's the way it is with a young Marine coming out of recruit training. They, uh, it, it has a mystique about it. Yeah, uh, it's not anything that's um, magical. It's just to be a Marine infantryman is something you know that uh, that people just stand a little bit taller for.
0: Sure, yeah. It kind of goes back to the. Some of the mystique and the, the, the tradition of the Marine Corps, because yeah. I've you know studied it to some yeah. extent, that yeah. you know, sort of the warrior elites yeah. is how. Well,
1: look, look, look! You know, you said you read, uh, Eugene Sledge. Sure. What did he want to do? He was a mortarman. Yeah, he okay, was a mortarman, yeah. but he was an infantryman. Mm-hmm. You know, and and that's what they wanted to do. World War II. Nobody wanted to issue bandages or or bullets. They wanted to be up where the bullets were being fired from the weapon. And I, I, I think that has something to do with our nature as, uh, as Americans. Sure. Yeah.
0: And a lot of those guys, too, that I've uh, I've read, their stories, um, I'm kind of always fascinated by how much they talk about the weapons that they use. Like, for instance, you know, Eugene Sledge talked about being a mortarman, and, and he just took so much pride in him and his team and how well they knew how to handle the weapon. That's right. Did you have a, a similar experience with learning how to, to use the, the, the tools and the weapons well, that you I, had? I,
1: of, of course you do. with one of the things that Marines take pride in is their ability to shoot. And it doesn't matter whether you're a cook, a clerk, or whether you're an infantryman. And so in going back to recruit training, one of the most stressful weeks of, of a young recruit is going to the rifle range, going to qualify, going to shoot. And the drill instructors let you know how important that skill was. Well, as an infantryman, you don't only, only need to learn how to shoot. You need to learn how to move. You need to learn how to employ uh, the different accessories that they give you, uh, like how to use a grenade or, or how to use a claymore mine or how to use those other things that they give you and how to use them in the appropriate areas. And, and I think people take pride. They took pride in that. You know, uh, there's always been this thing about, oh, he's only, he's only a, a grunt, and that's what an infantryman's called. If somebody looks at a grunt squad leader and the things that he has to do or the things that he has to know, they would be flat amazed at, uh, at, at his ability because he teaches all those things. Mm-hmm.
0: And being, you know, their tools and their technology, and it's yeah. a lot of different stuff, like you said, to have, and you have to, I'm assuming, be masterful at all those things.
1: You do, or you don't survive. Exactly.
0: So what, what came next? When did you ship out to Vietnam?
1: Uh... Okay, uh, after basic infantry training school, I went home on leave. Then they sent us to what we call staging battalion, uh, where they uh, got all your shots up and they did all the other things. Then you 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 left from El Toro Air Force Base, at Marine Base, mm-hmm. and we flew out from there to go to Vietnam. So you went to staging and then you went straight to Vietnam. Well, not straight to Vietnam. We went to Okinawa. You put all your dress uniforms and stuff in a box, and they, they put it in a warehouse until you got back. And you had a basic sea bag issue that you took to Vietnam with you. They put you on another plane and they flew you into Vietnam. And I arrived in Da Nang probably sometime in February of 1970.
0: So what what were your early impressions of Vietnam?
1: This place is horrible. Yeah, yeah. I've been I've been all over the place, but the most depressing heat that I've ever felt was when I stepped off the aircraft on the tarmac at Denang. Mm-hmm. And it was it was like walking from an air conditioned cabin into a blast furnace. Mm-hmm. And it just sapped your strength from that point on. But the good thing is that you got acclimated and once you got acclimated you didn't you didn't realize how badly you felt when you first got there. And and you went from there and of course you step off the aircraft and you think you're in a war zone. Well, not really, because that was the headquarters of what we called uh, third MAP at the time, Marine, uh, Marine Amphibious Force. Mm-hmm. And you went up to uh, the division headquarters, and they processed you and did things of that nature before you finally actually got out to your unit. So you had a couple days there, and then they put you on a helicopter, and they flew you to where you were going to go.
0: So did you essentially join up with your unit that you ended up fighting with once you were in Vietnam? Yeah.
1: Okay. Uh, Vietnam, an individual soldier or an individual Marine went there for a 13 month tour. So you rotated in, you joined your unit, and 13 months later you rotated out. Uh, not a good thing. Uh, because it, it, the, the way that we fight today is we rotate in units. So you train with your unit in the United States, you go to where you're going, and your unit comes back. And, and so there's no buddy in your squad that's the short timer. There's nobody in your squad that's going home next week. You're all going home next week. Uh, you all you're, you all got there, and you're all going to leave at the same time. So what you do is you're able to focus more on the mission. I know time and time and time and time again that you would see guys in the field in Vietnam who were within 30, 60 days of going home, and they would get timid. Because and then you get new guys that 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 join that same squad who don't who didn't know anything. So you had a mixture of both going on all the time. And it was not always a real positive situation. As a matter of fact, one of the famous sayings of uh, one of the Vietnamese, and I forget who it was, but he says, "Why do we listen to you? You're just gonna be gone in a year, and we're still gonna be here. Mm-hmm. So why should I listen to you and what you propose and not listen to that guy who lives in that same country with me?" Sure. So, uh, and 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 that was an attitude that people took. The closer I got to going home, the more cautious I was going to become. The less risk I wanted to take. Mm-hmm.
0: And mean, do you think that would have been different if you had been on the same rotation absolutely. schedule? Absolutely, absolutely,
1: because you're, you're you're mission oriented. Yeah,
0: and why why was the difference? I mean, is that simply because we had a draft in place then and we don't today, or is it just a, a change in overall tactics?
1: I, I I think it was a change in thinking because people saw. It. Please understand, uh, I've read uh, accounts of the Army after Vietnam, and the Army almost had to be rebuilt and retrained. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Marine Corps didn't get better or stronger in Vietnam. They got not as good as they should have been because of the rotation in and rotation out. You draw strength from your unit. You draw strength from the camaraderie of your company, your squad, your battalion. And, 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 that's, and that, that's who you were with in World War II. We didn't fight by rotating guys in for a couple of months. We fought as organizations. Vietnam is the only war that we fought where we rotate individuals in. The unit stayed, but individual rotated in and out. And I, 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 think, I think they found out that that might not have been the best thing to do.
0: Hey, everyone. I just want to take a quick break here. If you're enjoying this interview, please check out episode one of The Soldier's Tale, entitled Charlie Mike. In that episode, I speak to my friend Matt Vance, who spent six years in the Army as a cavalry scout and saw combat in Iraq during a total of 27 months deployed. And now, back to the interview with Sergeant Major Harold Hoffer. The first time that you're with your unit and you go out in the field, you you go out on a patrol or Mm -hmm. what have you, what... What feelings do you remember having
1: with that guy? Well, it, it, it's something you don't forget. My first patrol, we uh, we had gotten a, uh, a Viet Cong who had surrendered, and he was going to take us to a weapons cache. And I'd flown in, and, of course, I'm the new guy, so I've got a cami jacket on, sleeves rolled down, I've got my flak jacket buttoned up. You know, everything looks nice and green, and everybody else around me, everything is faded and nasty. Mm-hmm. And uh, I joined my squad. I was told what we were going to do, and, and of course, like I said, Marines take care of each other. They put me in as the last guy in the patrol, and I, my job was just to watch the back as 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 patrol went forward. Mm-hmm. And of course, the more experienced guy was in the front; he was a point man. And, and and the old guy said, "Hey, you, you need to take that jacket off. You're gonna you're gonna die." I said, "Well, they told me he says, you got a choice: listen to me, or do what those people back there told you to do." I listened to what those people in the rear told me to do. And about halfway through, I I had heat exhaustion. So they had to pour water on me and drag me into the shade. I, I became more of a burden mm-hmm. than I became uh, than I was an, uh, an asset. Uh, got through that, continued on the patrol, and uh, we had moved across the rice paddy when we were ambushed. And, of course, just like anybody else, the first time, you have the realization that there are people that are definitely trying to hurt you. I had the deer in the headlight look, and uh, my squad leader, uh, good on him, just uh, took took a hold of me and and, and got me to move. And, and once I started to move, and then other things would kick in. But it was uh, pretty traumatic because you uh, you'd never faced any. You know, you you'd done all the live fire training and all the other stuff in in uh, in the states, but it, you've never heard a zip past your ear. Mm-hmm. So then I
0: guess you you'd know kind of somewhere on a,
1: yeah, a deeper level that
0: you know it's, it's it's not really real until it's really so, real yeah. I guess
1: those guys that were training us were supposed to keep us safe those guys who were in the tree line didn't want us safe yep
0: yeah. is there one experience you had uh, in combat that that stands out to you as, as something really memorable maybe something that shaped you uh, in your life going forward uh, anything like that I, I,
1: I think the whole experience shaped me. You know, we in the Marine Corps call them sea stories. You could tell sea stories forever, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, and tell of all the the tales of uh, I don't know how you would describe it that, that you have over there. Mm-hmm. But but I but I think when you look over everything, it's the whole experience—the good experiences and the bad experiences—that kind of shape you into who you become. I learned to appreciate things more being there. Uh, I learned little things are important when i was over there i learned about honor while i was over there i learned about people depending on you and you depending on people and and those are those those are not combat related lessons those are people taking care of people lessons you know and uh, i think that was important people who would risk everything they have just to make sure that you were safe just so you wouldn't have to do it I think that, that 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 was pretty important. But when we talk about one certain situation, there are, there are a lot of situations that scared the, the, the snot out of me, mm-hmm. but the whole experience itself is what caused me to kind of change who I was.
0: I've heard the term uh, some veterans use uh, of an alive day that they celebrate, essentially a day when um, the veteran I spoke to last weekend, mm-hmm. um, he had a, a day when he was... He, he was actually in combat intelligence, and he and a, a, a comrade of his were kind of debating on who was going to go out on this next patrol, and it ended up being the other guy. And of course, he goes out and, and steps on a, a remote detonated landmine. Um, did you ever have, you know, I mean, I'm sure you had moments where the life or death thing was kind of up in the air, but did you ever have it, an experience like that that you looked to as, you know, it really could have gone? one way or the other? Oh, I,
1: I, you know, there, there was one time in the mountains where I, I tripped a booby trap that didn't go off. And for the life of me, I don't know how I did it, why I did it, but uh, we had been uh, socked in for a while. Supplies couldn't get to us and we had moved on to, up onto this hill. And um, I told my point man to go one way. I was a squad leader at the time. I told him to go one way and for some odd reason, instead of going the way the point man went, I went the other way, moving up this hill. And I just stepped down and the ground went away, and there was an 82 millimeter mortar round with a with a full friction fuse, and I stepped into it, and it didn't go off. So uh, I looked down and I said, Whew, "And and continued on." But you, you think about it later because I I had friends that lost their legs by that same type of round, and uh, it just wasn't your day. You were lucky, but you have more than one of those days. You have lots sure. of them, you know.
0: So tell me a little bit about. What was it like when you came back home?
1: I, we were living in Idaho at the time. Uh, we we land, When I got back, we landed at Norton Air Force Base. I went to Los Angeles and took a flight home to uh, to Pocatello, Idaho, and, uh, and, and drove home in, in a rented car. I was proud of my uniform, and I was proud of, of, of who I was. And the good thing about it is the part of the country I came from, so were they. I saw the attitude in Los Angeles uh, I saw people give you a double look and uh, and, and, and whisper you know and, and because you're just returning you look bad you know you were skinny and just didn't look well at all at least I didn't but where I was from in, in this small town called uh, Mud Lake Idaho where I joined where, I, where my parents were living I uh, people say welcome home you know and and uh, people say glad to have you back and uh and so it, it 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 wasn't what some veterans experienced in the in in the negative comments. And of course, I didn't live in a big city. I lived in a small town, and it was like anybody who you know there were. I didn't expect never have big parades or any of that stuff. But there were people who were really appreciative of what you'd done, and so that that helped out a lot.
0: Sure. Did you have uh, guys that you served with who had some of those, you know, came back to places that weren't so friendly? Absolutely.
1: To to I've known friends of mine who were from New York City, for example. Mm-hmm. They'd go home and uh, the parents say, well, you know, do me a favor, don't put your uniform on. I'm glad you're back, but don't put your uniform on. Mm-hmm. After I got back and I was stationed at Camp Pendleton, in California, I, I would go to Los Angeles and, and different places and you would get... The smug marks, yeah, or smug remarks, you would get... Because I left I left Vietnam in 1971, and uh, the war was still going on. So you would get those people that were the uh, the protesters or the people who thought it was smart to call you a name, things of that nature. And and it just didn't happen when I arrived, and it didn't happen in the community where I lived in. But sure. you got you, you got You were still the aware of it, for sure. Yeah, you got the attitude.
0: What was it like sort of transitioning back to... Civilian life, I guess. Now, you stayed in the Marine Corps, you Absolutely. said, for 28 years. So yeah. you stayed on as a career. Yeah. But what was it like sort of transitioning out of being in combat to then well, more day-to-day life? Well, it, it,
1: it's just, you know, I teach psych here. We, we talk about something called classical conditioning. And when you're in combat, uh, you condition yourself to certain things. The great thing about classical conditioning is you can always extinguish that classical conditioning when you don't experience the factors that caused you to respond to a certain stimuli. Uh, I got home, and uh, it took a while. You know, you'd walk down the street and the car would backfire, and you'd jump, things of that nature. But but again, your mind tells you where you are, and you didn't do that. The good thing about it is is that Vietnam led to Beirut. Beirut led to other places. And when you needed to refire those instincts back up, you could fire them back up. It takes a while to get rid of them, but you, you fire them back up, and and it doesn't take a lot of conditioning to get back to where you need to be. And I think that that, that was a pretty important thing.
0: Mm. So you served in Beirut as well?
1: Well, we did first evacuation of Beirut in 1976 when uh, the the Palestinians were called the PLO, the Palestinians, mm. when uh, Arafat had had them. We did it. We did an evacuation in 1976 with them. And, you know, there have been a lot of... Uh, little things along the way but when you needed it it always came back you always remembered the lessons
0: and i'm sure being you know staying in the corps and, and maintaining that discipline that all kind of played into that as well absolutely sure absolutely it seems like you took some pretty important life lessons from your experience you know in in vietnam but also in the marine corps in general what do you say to other veterans who are out there who might be struggling? Whether it's veterans from your era, veterans coming back from you know Iraq and Afghanistan in the last few years, because um, you know it, there are challenges that veterans Absolutely. face coming back to, to civilian life. What what kind of advice would you have for those guys?
1: I would. The advice I would give them is talking to mama, talking to daddy doesn't help it, unless your dad's a combat veteran. You know, you find people that have been there, who have done that, to be able to relate to, because they can relate to you back. We live in a better world today for veterans when they come back than we did in 1969, 1970, 1971. People want to hire veterans. People want veterans to be successful. But the world doesn't owe you anything, you know? You've got to go out and you have to earn it, just like everybody else does. Because you've been to combat, it's an experience. However, because of the experience, no one owes you anything Mm -hmm. other than the opportunity to be successful later on. And I I think that the people that that I've associated with in my life didn't want anything other than a thank you and uh, want the ability to have the opportunity to compete to be successful. And that's all they want. They don't expect people to give them anything. Uh, A thank you is nice. It's a great thing. A job's even a better thing. But like anything else, if you want a job, you have to compete for a job. You're not entitled to one just because you're a combat veteran, just because you spent 12 months or a year doing the bidding of the United States of America. There are places and there are organizations and there are programs that are there to help that vet. Nobody wants to keep him down. But again, if, if if they're having issues, then they need to find somebody, and and the help is available. It, it's there. Uh, the VA provides the help, although uh, we we hear of all the bad things of the VA now. But they pro- they provide help. They provide assistance. They pr- provide aid. Uh, they want to see veterans succeed. I'd like I like to see them succeed. The thing that that uh, kind of pulls at me a lot is to see a guy who served our nation not having a job. Not even, not not being able to find a meal, and nobody willing to give him a chance. Fortunately, that didn't happen to me. But
0: uh, so along those lines, what do you what do you say to people? You know, maybe potential employers, maybe family members of a veteran who comes home, and maybe those family members have a hard time relating to the veteran, uh, or, or like I said, a potential employer who might think, well, you know. What is his experience going to bring to the
1: table here? Well, I I would ask them, what is his experience going to bring to the table? I think employers want a man that is focused. I think uh, an employer wants a man that is dependable. I think an employer wants a man that is organized. So those, those are all good things. You know, I can teach you a skill. I can teach you how to run a lathe or... Or change a tire or do those other things. But I need you there when the job starts. Okay. And and these guys from the armed forces do that. And they are loyal. If you're Xerox and you hire them, they're loyal to you. Uh, they They will support you in what you do as long as it's the right thing you do. They won't support you if you do something wrong. Sure. But they will support you in the right things that you do. From guys getting out of the service, if if I were if I were picking a, a uh, potential employees, I would look for that guy that that, uh, that was a serviceman in a minute, because half the battle's whipped once I've got him. All I got, I can train him, mm-hmm. but I've got those those things that I need, those intangibles that guy's got, mm-hmm. and those intangibles are what are going to make, make me successful as a business. Cool.
0: Thanks for taking the time to speak with me, and and thank you so much for your service.
1: Oh, as always, and uh, and thank you for saying that. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Sergeant Major.
0: That's all for Episode 2. Thank you so much for listening, and I want to say thank you again to Sergeant Major Hoffer for speaking with me. I'd also like to thank the production team at River District Listener, including Eric Mills, Zach Jones, and Jesse Finney. This has been The Soldier's Tale. We thank you for listening. And to those who served, today and every day, we are grateful.